0: Prayer is a distinctive mark of Christianity. Some of you may be thinking, now wait a minute, Christians aren't the only people who pray. There are followers of many religions that are probably more persistent, more frequent in their prayers than the vast majority of people who claim to be Christian you may think to yourself, Pastor, how can you say that prayer is distinctively Christian? Followers of Islam are taught on five occasions every day to face the East, kneel on paper-thin mats, put their faces to the ground, and pray. An Orthodox Jew is told, From his youngest of years that he ought to pray regularly the great Shema and every day ought to ask for the peace and protection of Israel. Even followers of Eastern religions are told by their leaders that they need to reserve significant amounts of time in their day for contemplative prayer and personal meditation. So how can I say that prayer is distinctively Christian? Well, let me answer it this way. Christians are the only people on the planet who can pray in Jesus' name. And before you think that's just a tagline that we put at the end of our prayers, or somehow a a formula for hocus-pocus abracadabra, Let me remind you that all throughout the ages, a person's name was much more than a way to differentiate the identity between this one and that one. A person's name always carried essence, power, authority, reputation, character. So when you and I pray, we are asking that our prayers are saturated with the essence of Christ. That our prayers are saturated with the power of Jesus. That our prayers are permeated with the authority of Jesus the Christ. That when we pray, we are praying on the reputation and on the character of Jesus our Lord. We would not dare go before a holy God in my name or in your name. We go before God in Jesus' name. And that makes all the difference. Because... I would not dare stand before a holy God in my name. My name is so frail, fragile. It it communicates the essence, reputation, and character of a sinner. And I love you, but I would not dare go to a holy God in your name. When we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Because we stand before God under the blanket of the character and the essence of Christ. It's important for us to know um, how to pray, but it's almost even more important for us to know to whom we pray. That brings us to our passage today. Today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 18. We're continuing our wonderful study of the Gospel of Luke in a sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance. And this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 8. It's that passage I invite you to direct your attention. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 18, let us begin at verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus tells a parable. In a certain town, there was a certain man. In this parable, uh, there is a villain and a victim. He starts with the villain. The villain was a certain man who just happened to be a judge. This judge was horrible. He was unjust. In the words of Jesus, he must have been the worst of all sinners. The reason I can say that is because Jesus says this unjust judge did not fear God, nor did he care about men. Now earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had already stated that the two Greatest commandments in all of the Old Testament are, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus describes one who does not love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He does not fear God. He also describes this man as one who does not love neighbor itself, for he does not even care about other men. This man is corrupt. He is self-absorbed. His only ethic is self-interest. If you were living in that day and time and you had to stand before a judge like that, you only had three options. First, if you had enough money, you just might be able to pay him off with a bribe. After all, an unjust judge was always good on a bribe. So if you had enough money, you just might be able to bribe him. If you had enough prestige, you might be able to intimidate him. But if you didn't have cash or clout, you only had one other option, just to plea for mercy. It's at this moment that Jesus introduces us to the second character of the story. The second person is the victim. He describes this victim as a widow. In the first century, widows uh, were easy targets of victimization. They really had no rights, no defender. In fact, um, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, it says that God is the one who provides food and clothing for the fatherless, the foreigner, And the widow. Also in Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the fatherless, the foreigner, and the widow. Apparently, this unjust judge had never read Deuteronomy. This widow kept coming for justice. I can't really imagine this, but apparently, somebody had an axe to grind against this sweet, elderly widow. She had an adversary. She had somebody who had done her wrong. She had somebody who had something against her. She had some injustice that was being leveled against her soul. She did whatever she thought she could do. The only thing that she perhaps could uh, potentially do, she went to the judge and she pleaded for mercy. I can well imagine that uh, this woman uh, was persistent in her pleas. She probably woke up before dawn. She probably was at this judge's office before the judge ever got there to drink his morning coffee. And when he came into the door, she was there and she would say, Hey, sir, please give me justice. At noontime, when the judge would go into the marketplace to find something for lunch, Guess who who he'd bump into? That widow. She would make sure that her path crossed with his. And when she saw him, she would say, judge, please give me some justice. After a long day, seated behind the bench and, and issuing all of the cases, the judge was was tired and he would make his way home. Yet before he could get into his pajamas and relax on his lazy boy, guess who was right outside of his house? You betcha, that widow. And what she's saying, Sir, please give me justice. If he ever gave her a court date, if she was ever on the docket, when he looked up and saw her, he would strike the gavel and say, Case dismissed. She kept pursuing. She kept pleading. She pestered the stew out of this man. And eventually, the unjust judge said, you know, I don't fear God. I don't even care about men. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice. Because eventually, She'll just wear me out with her coming. Those words are very picturesque in the original language. That word that says bothering me is is the word troubling me. She's worrying me. She's getting on my last nerves. And that word that's translated wear me out with her coming literally reads she'll give me a black eye. Now, the reason he says that could be one of two reasons. Either, number one, uh, he's losing so much sleep because of this woman hounding him that he's going to start waking up with dark circles under his eyes. Or what he's saying is, I'm really going to make this woman mad, and she's going to haul off and slug me right in the eye and give me a black eye. Either way, I'll give her justice so that she will stop bothering me and eventually wear me out with her coming. It's not uncommon for Jesus to tell a story. He oftentimes would tell parables to the crowd, to his disciples. I'm really quite jealous of his ability to spin a story off the cuff. Oh, his stories are so good, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're so detailed, yet they're not too detailed. They pack a punch, and, and they're, they're shrouded in some mystery, so you got to kind of connect the dots. and it's, They're marvelous. And he would just do it off the cuff. Jesus oftentimes would tell stories because he knew that people are picturesque. They've got to see it in order to get it. So he would paint a portrait of What it's like in the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, the rule of Christ is like. Many times the parables are comparative stories. He's comparing something on earth which is something like what is eternal. Many times it's a comparison. In fact, just a few weeks ago, and you'll remember it well, we studied the most famous story Jesus ever told. It's in Luke 15. It's a story of the prodigal son. And that story is a comparison story. A father had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the estate. So right there, the father divided his inheritance with the older son and the younger son. The younger son liquidized his assets and off he went to the far country and he wasted his wealth in wild living. This one who had never worked one day in his life eventually had to work because all of his funds ran out. And so when he had no more money, he had no more friends. And then there was a famine that struck the land. And so he went out and hired himself to a Gentile pig farmer. And this Jewish boy was feeding pigs. He got so hungry He thought to himself, listen, uh, even my father has hired men who have food to spare. They have a roof over their head, they have clothes on their back, they have food on their table. Maybe my father will make me a misthios. maybe he'll make me a a day laborer. So he rehearsed his speech and off he went towards the family farm. And yet while he was still a long way off, his father saw him in a distance. You'll recall that when we talked about that story, I said uh, that The father running in public was a uh, a social faux pas. No father would ever be portrayed as being in a hurry. He uh, had a swag. He, He had a strut. He was always slow in his movements because he was never rushed, never in a hurry. Yet this father threw cultural customs to the wind and social norms out the window. And he ran to his son. When he got to his son, he, he fell uh, around his neck and he kissed him on the cheek and he ordered for the ring and the robe to be placed on him and sandals to be put on his feet. And he ordered for the fattened calf to be killed. There was a party that went on. Uh, later, when the older brother heard all the commotion, the music, and saw the dancing at the family farmhouse, he went up and said to one of the servants, hey, what's going on up there? And the servant said, your daddy ordered for the fattened calf to be killed because that brother of yours that was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found, and your brother has come home. And the older brother fumed out of frustration, refused to go in. So what did the father do? He did the very same thing to the older son that he had done to the younger son your text probably would say that the father went out to his older son but really what it means and what it implies is that the father ran to his older son as he ran to the younger he ran to the older throwing cultural customs out the window and social norms to the wind he ran to his son in a very undignified way why because that father loves his children Now, why does Jesus tell the story? He tells the story so that people can compare what God the Father is like. Because God the Father is like the father of that story. Jesus told the story because Pharisees older brothers, were asking the question, Jesus, why do you hang out with the underbelly of society, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the younger sons, younger brothers, why do you hang out with them? And the answer is because God the Father loves them, but he doesn't love them any more than he loves you. He runs to you just like I am running after them. So it's a comparison story. You can compare the earthly dad to the Heavenly Father. Why do I tell you that? Well, when you and I come to Luke 18, the story I just read for you, it is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. Jesus is not saying that God is like an unjust judge. He's saying the opposite of that. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. The text gives us a couple of pointers. The first one actually comes from the pen of Luke. Luke says at the very beginning of uh, verse 1, chapter 18, that Jesus told his disciples this parable to teach them that they ought to pray and not give up. This story has something to do with prayer. This story has something to do with teaching God's people to pray and to not give up On prayer but before you uh, reach the false conclusion that somehow what Jesus is telling us is that we need to be persistent in our prayers just like that widow for she bugged the stew out of the unjust judge and all you have to do is bug the stew out of God and he'll eventually uh, give in and you'll wear him down and he'll give you what you desire before you come to that faulty false conclusion Jesus gives us another pointer He says, did you hear what the unjust judge said? That's his way of telling us, take your eyes off of the widow and place your eyes on the unjust judge. This story is not so much about the persistency of the widow. Jesus says, I'm telling you this story so that you will tune in and hone in on the words of the unjust judge. Did you hear what he said? I don't care about God. I don't care about men. I'll see that she gets justice. This widow that keeps troubling me, bothering me. Or eventually she'll wear me out with her coming. Jesus says, did you hear what he said? God is not an unjust judge. In fact, the opposite is true. Our God, the God to whom we pray, is just and kind and gracious and benevolent. He is a great, awesome Father. Jesus uh, asked three questions. The first question is, will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? The implied answer is yes. Will he bring about justice? Yes! He will bring about justice. He, he's not like the unjust judge. He's the opposite of that. Will he bring justice? Yes! Will he defend the cause of the fatherless and the foreigner and the widow? Yes. Will he provide all of the needs of his people? Yes. Why? Because he is a gracious judge. He is a merciful judge. We do not pray to one that we have to wear down and wear out. We pray to the one who knows all of our needs before we even ask them. And he wants to meet our needs by his mercy, not by our merit. We pray to a just judge. A gracious Father. A benevolent Lord. Will not God bring about justice to His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? I like how Jesus defines prayer. He says prayer, chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night. Beloved, if you're a child of God, if you've received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you pray in the reputation and the character of Christ, I want you to know this morning that you are a chosen child of God. You are chosen. You are sovereignly selected. Not so you'll be arrogant, but so that you'll be comforted. So that you know that you have been selected by God, that you've been selected and chosen by his will, not because of your goodness, but because of his grace. Not because of your merit, but because of his mercy. He chose me. He chose you. I know me, and I'm getting to know you, and you're getting to know me. And aren't you flabbergasted that he chose me and he chose you? A heartier amen would have been in order. I mean, think about it. The fact that God has selected us as sinful, as selfish, as frail, as inconsistent as we are. It can't be because we're all that good. It has to be because he is all that great. He is not an unjust judge. He is a gracious, benevolent, merciful judge. He selected us, chosen ones is what he calls us. Jesus says prayer is the chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. That's a mirrorism, day and night. It's like when You were a kid and you were dirty, filthy because you've been outside playing and you walked in and your mother said, get in that bathtub because you're dirty from head to toe. That's a mirrorism. She's saying that you are completely dirty. A mirrorism is that you identify the extremes to communicate totality. So a child of God is a chosen one who cries out to God day and night. There's never a bad time to pray. Every time is a good time to pray. There's no problem that's too big. There's no issue that's too small. You can pray about it. You cry out to the Lord. This is very reminiscent of what God said to Moses in Exodus chapters 2 and 3. When the Lord spoke to Moses through that burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed, and the Lord said to him, I have seen the misery of my people. I've heard their crying out, and I'm concerned about them. Isn't it great to know that we pray to a God who sees and hears and is concerned? So he said to Moses, Go. Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Because I've heard their crying out. I wonder this morning, do you need to cry out? Is there anything, chosen one of God? Is there anything that you need to cry out to the Father about? Maybe you need to cry out, about a broken relationship maybe you need to cry out about a shattered heart maybe you need to cry out about a prodigal child maybe you need to cry out about a, a damaged marriage maybe you need to cry out uh, for the need for employment maybe you need to cry out for a health concern maybe you need to cry out for a family crisis. Maybe you need to cry out for an injustice that's being leveled against you. Is there anybody in the house, any chosen one of God, who just simply needs to come today and kneel on his face or her face before the Lord and cry out to Him because you know that He sees your misery and He hears your crying out and He's concerned about you. Don't ever forget the God to whom we pray. Jesus says He is not like an unjust judge. Jesus asked a second question. Will he, being God, keep putting them, being you, off? The unjust judge kept refusing this widow. He kept putting her off. Case dismissed. Leave me alone. You're getting on my last nerves. You're bothering me. He said, will God keep putting you off? The implied answer is no. Because Jesus follows that by saying, I tell you, he will see that you get justice and quickly. It's in this moment that some of you may want to take exception to the teaching of Jesus. Quickly? Quickly? Are you serious? Quickly? Are you kidding me? Quickly? I know people who have been praying for something for a decade. And it hasn't happened yet. I know people who have been praying for year upon year, more than a decade, and it hasn't happened yet. I know people that are waiting for justice, waiting for an open door, waiting for correction, waiting for uh, restoration, waiting, waiting, waiting. And they're waiting upon waiting. And God hasn't acted quickly. Yet here Jesus says, will God keep putting them off? No. I tell you, they will get justice and quickly. There's some of you today that read that text and what you want to do is you want to mark out the words and quickly he will see that they get justice, period. Or maybe you want to say he'll say they get justice, question mark. Because some of you wonder is justice ever going to be over the horizon? Is mercy ever going to come in your mess? And you wonder does God move quickly? Let me just remind you The last prophet to say, thus saith the Lord, was a guy by the name of Malachi. I had a seminary professor that called him the Italian prophet Malachi. Yeah, I kind of laugh like that too. Anyway, Malachi spoke 400 years before the coming of Christ. And after him, there was a divine gag order and God said nothing. God never raised up another prophet to say, thus saith the Lord. And for 400 years... There was no man of God to stand up to speak for the God of the Word. Our country is about to celebrate 240 years. That's a mighty long time, right? Can you imagine 400 years of divine silence? And what were God's people doing? Well, they were still praying. They were still hoping. They were still believing. They were still waiting for the Messiah. And once God moved, he moved quickly. Because in the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That at that perfect moment, God sent Jesus, and He came in a Bethlehem barn. And in a matter of no more than three decades, 33 years... God sent salvation. Salvation was lived out perfectly. It was implemented. It was signed, sealed, and delivered. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine and for the sins of all of lost humanity. And he was placed in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he was raised to life. And then he ascended into the heavens. In a little more than three decades, the God who had divine gag order for 400 years then moved quickly. God knows the tempo and the rhythm of your life. Don't always mistake delay for denial. Don't always assume that just because God is delayed, that means he is denying your justice or his activity in your life. Delay does not always necessarily mean denial because God knows who you are, where you are, and what you are. And God knows how you are. God knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows how you are. He knows what you are. He knows what you need. He knows what you need better than you know what you need. So we serve the God and we pray to the God who gives us justice. And when he moves, you better strap on the seatbelt because it's going to be quickly. You may think, God, why are you tearing? God, why are you delaying? God, why aren't you moving? And then when the winds of the Spirit of God begin to blow, you better hold on to your sandals because he's about to blow your socks off because God moves quickly to do his work, his good in your life. Jesus asked a third question. When the Son of Man returns, Will he find faith on the earth? That's an interesting question, isn't it? It takes us back to the previous passage of Luke chapter 17, um, where Jesus talks about the second coming of of the Son of Man. And in our passage, Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns. Friends, can I tell you, it is not a question of if the Son of Man will return, it's a question of when the Son of Man returns. Because Jesus is coming back. I don't know if you know that. I know it's been 2,000 years. I know it's been a mighty long time. But just because he's delayed doesn't mean he's denying the truth that he is coming back. One day, he'll split that eastern sky. One day, he will come and he will rescue his church. Jesus is coming back. Not a question of if, it's a question of when. The second coming of Christ cannot be debated nor can it be denied. Jesus is coming back. When he comes back, what's it going to be like? Well, according to Luke 17, Jesus said it'll be like lightning that flashes across the sky. Lightning is spontaneous. It's undeniable. You stand there with your buddy, and both of y'all looking up in the sky, in the night sky, and lightning flashes across the sky, and you say, Hey man, did you see that? He cannot say, see what? Because lightning is undeniable. It's spontaneous, it's visible. When Christ comes back, it's going to be spontaneous. It's going to be undeniable. It's going to be visible. And then Jesus says, "Um, it will be like in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot. What does that mean? Well, in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, everything was going on. People were eating and drinking. They were doing business and commerce. People were getting married, uh, life as usual, until Noah went into the ark and shut the door. Then everything changed until Lot took his family and left the city of Sodom, and then everything changed. What will it be like before the Son of Man comes? It'll be like business as usual. Everything's going to be going on just like it normally goes on, and then Jesus will come back. It will be spontaneous. It'll be undeniable. It'll be visible, and it will be a game changer. It will change everything just like the flood and just like the fire of sulfur. But Jesus asked a question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I expect him to ask the question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find prayer warriors on the earth? The story's about prayer, right? I mean, hello, Luke just told us the story was about prayer. You expect him to say, when the Son of Man returns, will he find Prayer warriors on the earth. He doesn't say that. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Because Jesus knows that if you're going to pray in his name, you've got to have faith in him. You can't pray without faith in Christ. And faith in Christ will always prompt you to pray. How do you pray? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the very next story is another one of those dandy parables of Jesus where he said, Two men went up to a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood in the middle so everybody could see him. And he stood up and he prayed about himself. The word about could be translated as to. He prayed to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector back there. Oh, no, God, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Let me go ahead and turn around so you can pat me on the back, God. Because I'm a good guy, and you're lucky to have me in your family. <laughs> and Jesus said, but the tax collector stood at a distance, beat his chest, could not even look up to the heavens, and uttered a seven-word prayer, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's it. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man, not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Justified is... To be declared innocent in God's sight. Are you kidding me? The, the tax collector, the known crook, the, the tax collector, he went home. Just- How did he go home justified? Because he prayed in faith. He prayed in faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. He prayed in faith through the name of Jesus, through the reputation of our Lord, through the very character of Christ. He prayed a seven word prayer that can never be denied Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I wonder this morning, any sinners in the crowd? I wonder this morning, is there anybody who just needs to come and fall on their face before the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When Jesus comes back, Will he find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes back, will he find faith in your house? When Jesus comes back, will he find faith in your heart? The first question implied a yes response. The second question implied a negative response, a no. But the third question is open-ended. It's as if Jesus invites us into the story. When he comes back, what's he going to find? May he find faith in this heart. How do you know? Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Church, the altar's open. And can I go ahead and tell you, it ought to be full this morning. When we come as chosen ones of God to cry out to him day and night, saying, what? Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. In Jesus' name, we pray this prayer. And Father, we come before you to declare we are utterly desperate for you. So we cry out to you for ourselves, for our family, for our country. We cry out to you for our finances and our future. We cry out to you for our prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. We cry out to you for uh, our health. And uh, we cry out to you for power. We cry out to you for your reputation to live in us. We cry out to you day and night, night and day. We cry out to you, oh God, hear the prayers of your children as we pray them in Jesus' name.